But I know that the wine world is a terrifying place for most people who think there's so that the essence of everything I do, Mike, is this. People think there's a right answer when it comes to wine and wine etiquette. And my joke right off the bat is there is no right answer. There's only one wrong answer, and that is white Zinfandel. And like, but I'm from. That's my guest, Anthony Giglio, on today's episode of the Mic Drop Moment. You know, when we were putting this together in the midst of the coronavirus uh, pandemic that's that's going on everywhere, I thought, is it the right time to put out a podcast? Should I say something? What do I say? Who's the right guest to uh, to help us, you know, feel good to entertain us and also add some humanity to it? And I also realized sometimes that these podcasts are like weird little messages to the future. We have no idea right now how things are going to turn out, what's going to happen. I think a lot of the people that I know and myself are hopeful that things will get back to normal quickly, but we don't know. And we don't know what that will look like, how long it'll last. So it's an interesting thing to be recording content while this goes on. It's an interesting thing to think, hmm. When someone listens to this podcast, because this part won't get edited out in the future, they'll know that this episode was released in March of 2020. They'll know how things turned out with the coronavirus. And so it'll be like an interesting little snapshot. But I also had that moment of, should I be releasing podcast episodes right now? And I thought, well, the world certainly doesn't need my opinion on what's going on with our health and safety right now. There are doctors and lots of smart people that you should be listening to about that. It also seems like there's a whole bunch of how-to content out there about how to, how to market your business and how to handle your kids and all of that. And I thought, you know what I can contribute? I can contribute these conversations that I've had with people over the last couple of months for the mic drop moment. Conversations like the one today with Anthony Giglio. So hopefully wherever you are, you are safe and happy practicing the best practices in social distancing. And I just wanted to send this little reminder that we're still here. We're still feeling things. And uh, sometimes amidst the chaos and the news and all of the information we need to take in, it's helpful to sometimes take a break and hear something that's full of life and love and humanity and a little bit of laughter. And that's this episode with Anthony Giglio. I met Anthony a couple of years ago, actually, probably like five years ago, through our mutual friends at Brooks Winery. So while this isn't a wine and wisdom episode where I pair with wine, I say, why not order up or grab a bottle of Brooks wine if you can? Otherwise, grab some Pinot or bourbon or just grab whatever you've got and drink it. But if you have a chance, grab some Brooks wine. They're up in, uh, in Oregon. And, uh, and they make great Pinot and great Riesling. I'm a huge fan, and, and we love them over there. We've been members and friends for years. And that's how I met Anthony. He was there to host a big event for all their wine club members. And he was the MC of the event and the, the host up on stage with the winemaker. And I thought, whoa. And I got to do a winery tour and all those cool things you get to do when you're like living VIP life and can hang out with Anthony Giglio. And he was so entertaining. He's, he's known as being one of the most entertaining wine and spirits authorities on the planet. And, uh, and I can tell you, after witnessing him in person, it is true. He is indeed one of the most entertaining wine and spirits authorities on the planet and certainly the most entertaining one on this podcast. See, I 
am a wine geek and former sommelier as well, but Anthony, he beats me. He's really, really freaking funny. He is a writer, an educator, a business person, and ultimately a storyteller, which is why I wanted to bring him here for the show. He has written for Food and Wine. He is the wine director of the Uber Swanky Centurion Lounge, which are the super fancy Amex lounges in a bunch of airports. He heads up the wine program there. He's the writer of 11 books and has been featured in Esquire magazine, Details, The Rob Report, The New York Times. He's been on the Today Show and Food Network, and he's a two-time moth speaker. The moth are these really great storytelling events, and he's done it twice. And his talk, which I've linked in the show notes here, is called Listen Here, Fancy Pants. That's one of the moths that he did. And it's all about the white-collar son making peace with his blue-collar father. And we actually get into that at the end of this episode. And ah, uh, if you have some tissues around, or maybe not, maybe just use your like shirt or something because tissues are in short order, you're going to need them for how this episode ends. Anthony opens up and, and shares a little bit about the process of creating that moth and delivering it, and uh, it's it's moving. I was crying listening to it and talking to him, even though I've heard the story a few times. So this episode is all about storytelling, business, entertainment, and bringing humanity and more of yourself to the work you do. If you want to check out more about Anthony Giglio, you can find him at anthonygilio.com or at Anthony Giglio online. You can also check out his uh, his new uh, side project as well. You can find that on Instagram at SideGigSuperSalt. It's his new... Uh, it's his new creation. It's awesome. It's this uh, salt. So you can go check them out. But anthonygilio.com and at anthonygilio, that's where you want to go. Let's dive into this episode with my friend, the very entertaining and uh, just wanna, just a great guy. Get in here. Let's go listen to this. So you have a story to tell and you wonder how to own the stage and give that killer speech that will captivate the masses. You don't just want to speak to them. You want to transform your audience. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment. Bold conversations about public speaking, storytelling, and business that give you real-world valuable takeaways so you can craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your Mic Drop Moment. Here is your host, Mike Ganino. So one of the things I was one of the things I was really curious about, you and I met years ago at uh, at a mutual friend's wine event from Brooks Brooks Wine. Janie had you out to teach. There was like, I don't know, 400 people in this. I think it was like a high school or like a college auditorium. And there's 400 people were drinking like 15 wines. You're there interviewing the winemaker who is a lovely guy, but probably not somebody who wants to be in front of three or 400 people drinking wine. And I remember being, you know, we had spent the day walking around the the vineyard together, hanging out. And, and I remember in that moment, seeing you like transform into this, like one of the most engaging people in front of 300 people I've ever met. And wow. it was you know, so many people have this storytelling voice. They they get in front of people and they turn into like the presenter. And you were just so natural up there. Wow. I, uh, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I I've been working at it for years, um, and and yeah, I, I I I feel good in front of a big crowd. I feel, I but I I I think I'm a good reader of crowds, and that crowd, of course, is you know coming for a presentation. So like, I kind of feel like they're already in the right mindset. 
I do have um, business crowds like where it's, you know, a bunch of people have been in conferences all day and this is happy hour and I'm wrangling cats and it's, it's a totally different experience. So like I always say that there's a huge difference between people paying to come to hear me speak and me being paid to go talk to people who may not want to hear me speak. And there's, a, and there's, there's probably a, a I would bet you, you'd, you'd sense a huge energy shift in me in those two different situations. So you caught me on a great day with a, with an adoring crowd. And when I have that, when I have, um, and this may sound strange to say, when I have control of the, of, of the room and the crowd, I, I, I really do. I do really well. Um, I think that's when I'm at my best. And, and, and I, I feed off that energy when people are really um, into it and positive and they want to be there and they want to hear me, they've paid to come see me. That's all the difference. Um, which is interesting because we talk about the different, you and I both do, um, you know, speaking for all different sorts of people, um, some who pay us to come speak and some who pay to come hear us speak, right? And, and then we hopefully get paid for that too. But um, and it's a different, it's different energy. So I, I, I often feel like um, I have to, uh, I have to, oft, I have to work to seduce a crowd sometimes <laughs> and, 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 and I'm good at it. I've, I've, I've learned how to, 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 uh, to, to work a crowd. Um, and then there's other times when it's like the one you and I met at where it was just easy. And I was, I was at like full power, you know, the tank was full and, and I was feeling, you know, the energy from everyone that they were into it. And, and I just saw when that happens. Um, other times it might take a good 10, 15 minutes to get them to ease, you know, to fall in love with me. <laughs> and what is your, what is your, what are the rules of seduction? What are the, how do you walk up there and say, okay, I gotta, I'm going to turn this crowd on. Um, I would say self-deprecation has been one of my my secret sauces for for years. I figured out that a lot of people hear, oh, he's a sommelier. They can't, you know, they can't pronounce it. Or they choose not to pronounce it, or they they hate it, and that instantly makes me a snob. Um, oh, he's a wine expert. Oh, fantastic. well, they're they're concerned that you're gonna like talk about like the smell of a goose lily on a wet cat's bottom exactly. and. <laughs> try to get them to buy a wine that's like five times as expensive as they yeah, wanted. Exactly right. And so like I, I often, and you know, I always like, there's some people who come to hear me a, a million times or like, or the clients who hire me over and over, there's the eye roll when I say this, but I usually break in right away with, um, my name's Anthony Giglio and I'm from Jersey city. Anybody got a problem with that? And like people just guffaw because it's like, you know, and what's really, what, and, and, and there's a, there's a side, a, a sideline to that. You just, you're just in New York. You told me, um, the, the, the reputation of Jersey City has changed drastically in the last 10 years as, you know, this other borough and a food destination. Pete Wells has made more than enough enemies as the, you know, the New York Times restaurant critic, having three times come to Jersey City and stepped out of the boundaries of the five boroughs to give three and two stars to pizzerias and, and one restaurant that no longer exists. Um, but, you know, it, it's because we have this really exciting senior. I grew up here and it was a toilet when I was growing up and people were just <laughs> fleeing. My parents fled when I was a teenager. And so to think that, you know, I'm back here and um, and it's exciting and, and fun is, is, is interesting. But anyway, most people around the country hear Jersey City and just laugh. It's, the word Jersey makes people laugh. So I'm like, I'm a, you know, I'm, an, uh, I'm a kid from Jersey City, New Jersey, who's got a problem with that. People laugh and then I go right into a story about growing up um, in you know in, in a, a row house with my grandparents upstairs and all of our entertaining was done in the basement which is a very ethnic northeast thing that a lot of people get and some people just know from like everybody loves Raymond or something um, and it's it's that idea of you know this 
Scorsese film, uh, Sunday Lunch, where everybody's in the basement with big hair and cigarettes and drinking and laughing, and, and the door just keeps opening, and all you see is the feet coming up the alleyway, and uh, the kids are at the kids' table, and we're allowed to have wine too, and all these things just set up this leveling block. Like I, I'm literally bulldozing through the crowd with this and getting them to understand that I am the least pretentious guy on the planet, um, and I'm also the kid from the blue collar neighborhood who done good. Like, you know what I mean? I, not, not too shabby for a kid who grew up in a row house in Jersey city and, you know, ate in the basement with no light. Um, and, and that just, that sort of can sway a lot of people who might be doubters to, uh, to come my way. But I, I, I do say this, Mike, that I, I literally could watch a crowd and I see the shoulders go down and I see, you know, maybe that it's like that whole like lean forward thing where they're I have them and I can just see I'm pulling them, I'm pulling them in, I'm pulling them in, I'm pulling them in. And then I get funny, you know, like, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's sort of like the, the, the intro I do over and over and it works. It works. If I already have the crowd, I just get right to business and we start having fun with, with tasting. But if I don't, it's this sort of like this, you know, little comedy show in the beginning to get them to understand that I am not here to take this seriously. And I always say things like, um, okay, so we've taken, you know, there's this whole three sips thing I do to make people understand that. You can't just judge a wine in the first sip and you want to try it the second time to, to, you know, to, to judge balance. And then if you're still not sure, let's try it with food. And food could be anything from um, a breadstick, a salted nuts, a potato chip. I always joke and say, if we're desperate, a Dorito, until I was at an audience once where there were people from Frito-Lay who were not happy about that line. <laughs> but I'm saying it here <laughs> on your show. Um, and it's just for fun, right? Like just, again, to get people to understand, like I'm not talking about having caviar with this. I'm saying we could have potato chips. But once you add fat plus salt to the equation, everything changes and you see this aha thing happen, right? Um, but what, I'll, I'll do that with, with, um, with a group and then um, launch right into like, let's talk about tasting and, and pairing and this and that. And, and, and then I say, if you still don't like this wine after you've tasted it three times, you have every right to walk away from it. And I want you to know that I couldn't care less. And people like, are, like they think I'm being flippant and I'm like, no meaning, I'm not here to judge. I can't tell you what to like. If you tell me you like your steak medium rare and I like it, you know, I like it well done, you like it medium rare or whatever, um, I'm not here to judge. So you might not like your Cabernet fully oaked and, and 18%. So like, got it. We can move towards something lighter. Let's go towards Pinot Noir. But the point is, I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to ask you to give it a fair shake. And if you've given every single wine we taste today three sips and there's six wines, 18 sips later, I think you will leave a better informed person and you will never taste wine the same again. I guarantee this. And at the end, people are, you know, shaking my hand like I'm the Pope. It's crazy. <laughs> well, you I, that's one of the things that was so interesting for me. I've been around, you know, I was I was in the wine world for a long time. I was a, a sommelier. I bought a lot of wine and I taught wine inside of restaurants. And so that was, again, I had kind of the same thing, a captive audience, but also sometimes they were like, can I just drink it? Like, do you have to talk about it or can we just drink the wine? And when I saw you with this crowd, I thought, Oh, he is the Pope of wine because like, it's so, uh, it's, and it, that's a good reference for two guys with the names Giglio and Ganino, <laughs> a, a good Pope reference there. But, um, this, this approach that you took was so refreshing. And so did it happen to you to figure out, okay, I'm going to do events. So you were a sommelier. And then when did it come in to say, oh, wait a second, I, I like talking to people. I could do something with this. How did that opportunity come up? So to course correct, one thing is I'm a journalist first. 
Ah, and yes. So, so I, so I went to Fordham University in Manhattan and uh, was a journalist, journalist uh, and an art historian and all these crazy things. I was, I had all these ideas what I was going to do and nothing really worked out um, in the beginning. And I went from uh, from writing for lifestyle magazines like Travel and Leisure uh, to uh, a a uh, real estate financial magazine called National Real Estate Investor because that's the only magazine I could get to really work. Otherwise, I was a copy boy and a pencil sharpener. And I went to this uh, this trade magazine where I was writing seven columns and really learning reporting and um, and deadlines and writing and production. And it was it was it was, it was a great detour. It was, it, back then, it would seem dismal and horrible, but it was what I needed. Um, but while I was there, my editor, uh, Dora Hattress, um, who was, you know, to this day, I owe her my career. She said, why aren't you writing about wine? Like we would have coffee in her office every morning back in the, you know, this is the early 90s. And uh, she would be smoking because you could in your office back then. I never smoked, but um, we'd sit in her office and drink coffee. And she'd say, so um, what did you do this weekend? And somehow I must, I didn't, completely unconsciously, I talked about wine all the time. Like whatever, whoever I was dating, um, we had this and we had this and we had this. And she said, why are you writing about wine? And I looked at her like she was crazy. And I said, because I'm not 70. I have no idea. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I read Decanter and like everyone's British and white hair. And and she said, well, why do you think about it? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, well, whatever. Um, and literally like, within a few weeks, uh, Details Magazine, which was brand new back then, came out with uh, Matt Dillon crouched on the cover. I still have the, the magazine in my closet. And it says 92 careers for 1992. And uh the one of the careers was I'm paraphrasing or something like you know become a sommelier meet chicks and I'm like again with this so I I call the number and and whenever I tell this story especially to young people I'm like this is pre-internet this is you know this is me calling information and then calling and getting an answering machine and then waiting patiently for someone to reply two days later and the answer was um, we have two seats left and if you'd like to take the the diploma course it starts next Tuesday at noon and and I um. I, I said, noon, I'm, I, I work full time as an editor. And she said, well, this is for restaurant professionals, so figure it out. And I went back to Dora and I said, okay, remember that idea you had? Um, here's my plan. And she said, um, well, it could work, but the biggest obstacle is your big mouth. Because if I let you leave on Tuesdays at noon for a year, um, I can get fired and you can get fired. She said, so we'll make a plan and it'll be, you don't go to lunch the rest of the week. You eat at your desk so that if anybody catches us, we can say you've been making up the hours and it's true. Um, and on Tuesdays, you leave a jacket on the chair and I will shuffle boards for you and pretend you're out running errands for me. And dude, she did this for me for, for nothing, like, you know, nothing but friendship and, and love. Right. And I, uh, I got my diploma and she takes the last step. I get my diploma and I'm at my desk and she goes, please tell me you saw this already in the New York Times, want ads. And I said, no. And it was uh, Metropolitan Area Wine Magazine seeks managing editor. And I was like, I wouldn't have read it anyway. Managing editor, it's way above my, my pay grade. And she said, call it now. And I called it in front of her and it was Tish, uh, Bill Tisherman, who was the editor, uh, editor-in-chief of Wine Enthusiast. And uh, I went up and met him and he's like, so here's the deal. The the, uh, the ad was today we'd call it clickbait, right? He was like, the ad was uh, the ad was a bait and switch. You are managing editor, but you manage no one. It's me and you. But the title will open doors and it'll launch your career. And you stick with me for a few years and you'll be established. And I did it. So uh, that that began this whole trajectory into the wine world. And one of my best friends um, became uh, marketing director and then eventually publisher of Food and Wine magazine. 
And she was the one who invited me to Aspen one year to um, to cover my one of my mentors, Kevin Zraeli, one of the great wine educators in New York. I worked for him for two years at night while I was working at Wine Enthusiast during the day uh, at the Windows of the World Wine School. And he had called in uh, sick to speak in Aspen because his daughter was very ill. So I pinch hit it for him and got in front of Letty Teague, who was then the wine editor, and Dana Cowan, and, and got it was like an audition live in front of 250 <laughs> people and, and got the gig. And that started the, the ball rolling. So I've, I've been to 25 Food and Wine Classics now. And every time that I would get up there, people would come up after me and say, can you come speak to my, my clients? Can you come lead a tour and you know, come to our town? Or can you? And I just started getting in front of people more and more and more. And that's how I met Janie Brooks. Janie came to Aspen one year. She's like, I need you to come and do our, our boot camp. And I said, happily. So that's, that's what started this whole other direction, which was actually perfect, Mike, because journalism, we had no idea that we were standing on the edge of the cliff in the, in the mid nineties. Um, I, I, I go back to Fordham every now and then and speak uh, in my journalism class. My professor's still there because she was in her twenties when I was in, in her classes. And I say to them, like, you kids have no idea that, um, I, at the time, I was making two fifty a word, two dollars and fifty cents a word to write for magazines like you know Esquire and Details and GQ, and um, the internet is slowly starting up in the late '90s, and um, the bottom fell out. And you know, to this day, I'm still getting people who say, "Would you write for you know eighty cents a word, sixty cents a word?" And I say, "No, thank you," um, because it's gone. So, I, and even if I could get the two fifty I was making in 1996. What's your rent today from 1996? Like, right. what's your mortgage in 1996 versus now? So we're supposed to be happy with that. And I, I am grateful when I still get paid $2 or $2.50 from like departures, but um, very few people are doing it. And the cost of living has changed since then. So I don't write as much as I used to. I, I pick and choose. I would still write for The New Yorker if anyone's listening for free. <laughs> um, but otherwise, you know, it, it's got to be something that I'm really passionate about to write about. It all, all to say, to answer your question 15 minutes later, it all led to... Um, uh, being seen as an expert and then being hired to speak about it. And that's how I, I, it, it all went in that direction. Well, it's, it's, and it's an interesting thing because there's also that, I think, with, with folks like you and the very few people who can present wine and co-present. Because, I mean, a lot of times you're with a winemaker, you're with the, the producer, and your job is to make them look good as well. So you're kind of... Right. Speaking and you're emceeing at the same time, and it's a hard gig, and you do it you do it really well. So I I get why your uh, people are saying, please come to my town, please come and speak. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I I I would say that I've gotten enough practice to have it down. Um, a good friend of mine um, who's sort of like a, a life coach, um, her name is Jody Levine. She um, she's been to enough dinner parties at my house from you know, going <laughs> back for a decade or more, where. Anytime um, I would say, oh, I'm going in front of this big crowd and you know, this could be a challenge, she would just say, if you, can, if you could practice visualization, you're sitting at the head of your table holding court. That's exactly what it is over and over again. Um, if you could think that way, anytime you're even feeling in the middle of it, like you're losing the people, like just remember how you bang the glass and you tell a story and everyone is suddenly staring back at you again and they're quiet. And it, it, it works. It really, really works where I just tap the glass, and say, okay, let's, you know, like, it's like order in the court. But it, yeah, I, I, I've picked up a lot of tricks. I also throw out a Catholic school joke, which you'll probably get when, um, when I, I say, I'm sorry, are there any questions? And then like people stop talking and look at me for a second. Like, and, I, and I'm like, I don't really mean, are there any questions? That's actually 
passive aggressive Catholic nun for why is anyone speaking while I'm speaking? <laughs> and then like people laugh and it's sort of like, it's a funny way to pull them back in. But like, I don't, I like, I, I'll say that I, and I have actually have friends who are speakers and I'll go to their events and I, afterwards I, they're like, and if they ask, what did you think? I'll be honest. If they don't ask. I'll never offer. Right? I don't want to offend anybody, but I'll yeah. say you allow people to speak. And that is the worst thing. You do not let anybody talk at your events because it just, you lose control. People it, it's, it's disrespectful. And they shouldn't be on their phones and they shouldn't be like, you call them out, call them out in a fun way, but call people out like you don't let it happen because it just sets a completely different feel. If you could hear murmuring in the, in the back, it usually starts. People who want to hear, of course, are up front. But as soon as that starts, you've lost the crowd and you've lost, you know, like, I feel like you've lost respect. And that's maybe that's a very Italian thing to say, right? Like you lost <laughs> respect. But I, I do feel like, you know, you, you need to, you, you know, and, and it also means that you're not engaging them. Like clearly you, you're not doing your job and it's not just yeah. about, you know, calling out and being a barker. It's also like, clearly you, you're not holding them. You got to hold them better, man. Um, and that's so like, I don't know. I take that for granted that I don't have to do that a lot anymore, but I've gotten good at wrangling people and, 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 you know, and respectfully, like I want you to listen to me because I'm interesting, not because you have to, that's, right. that's ultimately the goal, right? Like, I hope you don't feel like you have to be here because your boss invited you. Um, <laughs> and if you, and if you are here because your boss invited you, I hope by the end of the night that you're giving me your card saying, I hope we could stay in touch and, um, I'd love to give you some business because that's that's what we all want, right? But um, and and I have to say it happens it happens a lot more than um, I expect. I'm I, I always go in thinking who knows what's going to happen here, <laughs> and then I you know the the goal is to leave pleasant surprised, and and I've I've gotten pretty good at surprising myself, I guess. Well, and there's that idea too of when people are are talking, it's not so much even it's also that other people want to listen. So right, like right. if you're over there, you know, talking about whatever the guy next to you, he might want to listen. And so part of our job on stage is to uh, control the room for those people as well. Right. Right. You know, this is not this is a tangent that doesn't go to speaking, but I'm going to say it anyway. I host a ton of wine dinners you know, I, yeah. I, I, all the time. I have one tomorrow night um, here in Jersey City. And um, I I'm often the 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 timekeeper with the host who's very nervous about starting if everyone's not there. And I say, listen, I'm not defending anyone who came 10 minutes early, but people who came on time and they've been standing around making small talk for more than 30 minutes, we need to sit down. And it's not fair to the people who, for, for legitimate reasons of traffic or accidents or whatever, or because they just come in when they feel like coming in, not our problem. We'll make them feel completely welcome when they get here, but we need to sit down and, and put a glass in hand and get the ball going because it's not fair. Like you just said, so there's the whole fairness thing. Like, so people talking is the same thing. It's not fair that you're disrupting, uh, you know, this, this, this thing that people are, are otherwise in, really interested in. Yeah. And it actually is a, the, there is a really clear cop to speaking or, or workshopping. Cause like, if you're leading a workshop, you're often co-hosting, you know, I was in New York this week, uh, leading a workshop with some bankers and I'm co-hosting it with their training department. You know, they kick it off. And so we had that same thing just happen where it's like, Hey, we're 10 minutes late. I know three people are here, but these other 15 people are here. So we should get going for them. And the other ones, they'll catch up when they catch up. Right. So it is a really, there's a comp to, to the speaking world there. So you were, you're talking about being a, a journalist. Do you think that, that that's shaped your approach to researching and thinking about an event and getting ready for it? Have you brought some of that into how you approach getting, you know, getting prepped for a big event? hundred percent. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say that uh, as a journalist and 
uh, and, 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 you know, a, a professionally trained journalist. Like I went, you know, I love when I went, you know, when I was in Florida, man, I, I just told a story the other day to, uh, to some kids that I was uh, teaching um, on uh, visit, you know, uh, like workshop day. This is freshman year. So this is 1981, no, sorry, 85. Um, our three guest speakers were Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, and um, who am I forgetting? And um, uh, Tom Brokaw. All three networks sent, you know, we requested they come to Lincoln Center and they all came in and there's like, you know, 80 of us in the auditorium and they're just sitting at a, you know, at a table in front of us talking like, I mean, uh, my, one of my greatest teachers was Joseph Dumbo, who was, um, who was uh, uh, Edward R. Murrow's assistant back in the 50s. Like, you know, this guy's still teaching journalism today. All to say that I'm, I'm terrified of ever being called out for not being uh, accurate and prepared. Right, so I'm a huge researcher. I'm a I'm actually an obsessive, to to my own detriment, researcher who always has notes prepared. On um, I, I I have this format that I use uh, eight and a half by eleven sheets divided. I set up two columns so that I could hold it in the palm of my hand, long like a long. It's a regular sheet of paper, but it's in half, right? So it's not so intrusive like a big paper. And plus, the lines are shorter to read, so they're bulleted so that I can read short, 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 short things as I'm speaking, um, if I need it. But just always be able to have that glance and keep, I'll even keep it on the table so you don't see it. But if I am standing when I'm walking around and talking, I have that ready and I can even fold it in half if I want to, you know, make it even smaller. But it's the, in the palm of the hand. I love that. But um, the other half of it is uh, as a speaker um, who wants to be taken seriously, um, part of journalism class was you need to get rid of your accent. So if I was speaking in my, my hometown accent in Jersey City, which sounds just like Brooklyn, there's no letter R. So it's car, mother, father, water, coffee. You're like, and, and I was you know, studying, I had to study all the branches of, of, of journalism. And it was one we had to do a year of broadcast. And they were with people. And I was in, in school with kids from Bensonhurst and the Bronx. And, and we all had to go to like elocution classes to, to exercise our terrible accents. But um, at the same time, I was also uh, then getting into um, to reading like the New Yorker daily. Like that was one of the exercises was to see how the, some of the greatest writers in the country write. And, you know, so it's, it's and this is the days before um, uh, podcasting where you would hear the author speaking. So you, you don't know what voice was in your head, but you I would start to, you know, hear myself and my better accent reading and and. Um, building a really beautiful vocabulary. I, I would say that if, if, you know, if, if I were to brag about anything and I'm, I'm very reticent to do that cause I'm, I'm very superstitious, but I would say I have a, a pretty spectacular vocabulary and, um, and I've learned to speak better and better and better in, in a cadence that's, um, clear and compelling and interesting. And, um, but I, I pride myself deeply on speaking beautifully. And, and I, I, I say that beautifully because, um, because I studied um, Italian for nine years, I, I learned that not knowing how to break down English, it's just natural, right? But by learning a second language, how you could say something direct or something politer or even even better, or if you're with the, you know, if you're meeting the priest or the, the monsignor or the pope, like layers and layers and layers they would have in Catholic school, the nuns would teach us this, but um, like how to speak um, eloquently, right? There's the word eloquently. Like, so sure I could say, oh, I'm waiting for the bus or it's like, you know, that's a terrible example. And I should have a better sentence ready for you and I'm not, but how to just sit, you know, to, to take it up a level 
and to say something, you know, in a beautiful turn of phrase, right? Uh, you know, to say, and, and people say, I like that. I love that. Um, and I, so ironically, I speak Italian beautifully, right? So, meaning I've been told this over and over again, because um, instead of just saying everything in the, in the present, I'm using pluperfect subjunctives and things like that, where people go, oh my God, like not even normal newscasters in Italy speak that way anymore. But I, you know, I, I, I'm speaking like this for 30 years. Um, so I, I use the same in English. Like, uh, and when I write, I say like, I, you know, dangling prepositions drive me insane, but it, it's completely, <laughs> it's completely accepted now. You know, like um, uh, Jim Nelson, when he was editor of, of GQ, we had dinner once and he would call out on social media, all of the dangling prepositions he would find. And I say, it's, and I say to my kids, it's so easy to just do this flip, write the sentence the way you speak. If you say like, what is that for? Or, 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 or God, what's, what's an example? Like, um, I'm, it's, it's what we were waiting for, right? It's what we were waiting for. And I'm like, um, or it's that for which you were waiting. Like, it doesn't take a lot of effort to do that. Um, that's not a, that's not an everyday. I love it though, because it, it does like, it's very, uh, you, you, we'll talk about the moth later, but, uh, you had, uh, your moth was, was, uh, listen here, fancy pants. And that is a very fancy pants sentence. I love it. hundred percent. Yeah. You're wow. That, that's, that's right. Yeah. You're right. And yeah, I've been called out my whole life like that for being, you know, but maybe it's, it's aspirational from growing up in the basement in Jersey city with a truck driver dad. And uh, you had a lot to make up for. Yeah. So like, I, I guess I've been digging out my whole life trying to, you know, just trying to, you know, be, you know, trying to be the next generation, represent the next generation better. Right. Um, well, and it's so fun because you also, your approach to teaching wine is also flipped a little bit. Whereas everyone else can be very, uh, they, they use uh, big, powerful words all the time and, and make it this access only place. You actually do the opposite when you're teaching wine, where you're very approachable and telling jokes and being fun. Yeah, you're right. You're completely right. Because that's, because that's what I know works. Like I, people want wine is the, so in, in everyday life. Yeah. I'm aspiring to be polished. Right. But I know that the wine world is a terrifying place for most people who think there's so that the essence of everything I do, Mike, is this people think there's a right answer when it comes to wine and wine etiquette. And my joke right off the bat is there is no right answer. There's only one wrong answer. And that is white Zinfandel. And like, but I'm from, so like, but like uh, I said, to people like, you think that there's a right answer. Like, Oh, if I'm having steak, I have to have this. If I'm having fish, I have to have this. And I'm like, all right, I'm opening the veil, everyone. And it might put me out of business, but there is no right answer. I don't care what you want with what. If it works for you, it's the same as me hating well-done steak. I can't even imagine people want to eat a steak well-done, but I know that more than probably half the country eats steak well-done. Like, fine for you. Um, I'm, you know, we, we could all still sit down together. I just hope that I could cook mine my way and you could have yours your way. Um, and the good news is my way could be finished to your way. Yours can't be undone to my way, but I'm going to be nice about it. Um, yeah. So to say that uh, there is no right answer, it's, it's, it's taste is subjective in everything, including wine. But wine is just so overwhelming because of having to, you know, look at a, a label and say, what am I looking at? And to say, OK, let's start with a grape. Let's start with a place. Let's start with this. And what does that mean? And let's talk about the hierarchy of grapes. And what does that mean? And, and so here's the lightest and here's medium and here's full. And then what are other factors to consider? And you know, take people to that. And it's all in plain language. So I, 
I figured out a long time ago that you will lose them if you say like, we're looking for medium plus uh, pH and, you know, a little, you know, a little bit of volatility, but not too much. Like, you know, I, I, I would say this when I say I, I became a sommelier and threw away 90% of what I learned because yeah. I realized early on that if I wanted to make a career as a wine writer, not a floor sommelier, nobody in the world gives a crap about the five subsoils of the Rheingau in Germany, except master sommeliers in, you know, in a, in a circle, like that's <laughs> right. Well, and it's, it's so true. When I was at, when I was at Lettuce Entertain You at Chicago and teaching wine, even the servers, what they were begging for was, can you give me an actual story I can use? Because again, going to the table, we, we, we had a, a Italian restaurant and there was like a bar for Chianti. Like I'm going to pay 40 bucks in the Chicago suburbs for Chianti. That's what I'm going to pay. And so we realized no matter what we put on the list for Chianti, they weren't going to pay more because they had a, a price threshold because they knew the grape. They knew the wine. So they were like, well, I know how much this should cost. And sometimes the the trick in a restaurant is you put stuff on there. Nobody knows how much it should cost. And then you could do whatever. So we were like, OK, could we make a could we make a move with with uh, Val Policella? So can we teach this somehow? So we did the whole three thing. We did Valpo, Rapasso, Amarone. We taught the lesson and we were able to increase sales, not because they could talk about the the grapes and the blend of the three grapes, but because we made this whole story up of like Goldilocks and how Rapasso was like the the perfect one because we charged 40 <laughs> bucks for the Valpo. We charged 120 for the Amarone and the Rapasso was, was like $65. So now we're making more than the Chianti. That's right. It's just and all right. The, <laughs> it's just right. All the servers wanted was a story. They didn't care about the Lees and how they just wanted a story. And so I think one of that, it's interesting when you're, you were saying this, one of the connections is this is exactly like speaking. Because sometimes we get in front of our audiences and say you're talking about HR or design or leadership or marketing, and we don't connect with them because we want to be seen as an expert. And I think it's the same thing that can happen with wine people. You get up there and you want to talk about currants. And it's like, I've never met a person who's actually eaten a currant right. in their life. Gooseberries. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> I don't even know. Some of these things sound like something from Harry Potter. Like there's a wet gooseberry on a cat's nipple. I don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Yeah, what what's that Instagram um, called? Something Garden Hose. Uh, oh yeah, there's that funny out, wine out Instagram. Of the, Psalm, the Psalm films or something where it's like all the pretentious adjectives you could possibly use for yeah. uh, for 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 wine descriptions. Yeah, so that that's I guess yeah. So that's 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 how I got there, Mike. That's how I got there. I love that. What is your? Do you have? So you're like. There's a joke in Hollywood about Kelly Clarkson that she has like 700 jobs because she's on The Voice That's and she's true. got a book and she's doing her talk show and now she's doing a cruise. I got an email from her email list. She's doing a cruise next year, the Kelly Clarkson cruise. Oh my God. You're a little bit like Kelly Clarkson to me. You have like 9,000 jobs. <laughs> I do. And it, I do. But it seems like it's just all stuff you're like super into. This is a cool opportunity. Yeah. Let me run with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so some of the hats um, contributed to Food & Wine forever and, and by – by design, all it's now called the luxury group. So it's travel and leisure, food and wine, departures, um, and and the uh, the the uh, the Centurion has a, a black book, a private magazine that you can only get if you have a black card. But I write for all those magazines. They actually do still pay pretty well. Um, and because of the connection between food and those three magazines, let's say, or those four magazines, and American Express, which used to own all those, and then after the banking crisis. Um, the rules changed that American Express had to either be a bank or a publishing house. They couldn't be both. So they sold to Time Inc. And then that turned into a, you know, a complete disaster. But anyway, they sold to Meredith. Um, and uh, 
as a result, I still hold on to a lot of stuff from American Express. So I am the wine director for American Express uh, Centurion lounges all around the country, and now we're going global. So we have Hong and, and if people don't know what that is, it's like the very fancy lounge you could go to uh, with certain – like not all Amex people get to go there. It's only like Platinum or higher level. free. So you need an Amex card to walk in. You can even be my guest without an Amex card. You need a, even the <laughs> lowest green card or whatever. You can, you, otherwise, you're not allowed in. That's a rule. So it's Amex Platinum or higher is free. But you could bring in um, – you could bring, I think, up to three guests. The rules keep changing because they become so popular that they're, uh, they're actually – they're insane. Like, like SFO, which is one of my favorites. Um, we're opening LAX very soon. Um, but SFO, uh, I have a beautiful wine wall. Like I'm not allowed to have that anywhere else. But I fought really hard to say like we have to go beyond – the normal wine service here because we're in the gateway to wine country and this was early on when there was still more money to play with as it, you know everything changes but i have a gorgeous wine wall there and so you can you can get in and it's gotten so crazy busy that now they've uh, i think it's down to two guests only and you're not allowed in less than three hours from your flight and you can't pop in on the way back which i always do like i would always just pop in grab a coffee because yeah. um, everything is free so unlike like, like, unlike, uh, I, I remember United used to have um, a lot of, you know, free stuff, but then there was the premium wines. Like, you know, the regular wine was Sauvignon Blanc, but if you want to upgrade to Chardonnay, you could pay $12 a glass. Everything in the lounges is free. It's made all these other lounges change the game because this is like year nine now of the program. Um, so that's one at. Also through American Express, but more through food and wine, I'm the online sommelier, which is a, a leads to hilarious stories for years. It's almost, I think, 15 years where anyone with a platinum card um, who opts into the food and wine newsletter, and it's somehow a, a thing that you could. Um, I don't even. I, I, I think I guess you get you must get uh, promo newsletters from from Platinum, and it says, "Oh, uh, food, love food and wine, opt yeah. into the food and wine newsletter." And then through there, you opt into me. And the fine print is Anthony Giulio is your online sommelier, your personal sommelier. Um, send him an email to this address that filters to my email, and. He'll answer you within 48 hours, but nobody reads the 48 hours. They all think I'm standing here waiting like they're texting me. And I get the craziest, craziest um, uh, messages all the time. And like, like the, the, my, the ones I pull out of my pocket at a tasting would be like, um, dear Anthony, oh my God, the steaks are on the grill and all we have is Chardonnay. Now what? I mean, that really happened. That happened probably in five different ways, the same sort of email. And I'm like, well... And I, like the one time I caught it while the steaks were still on the grill, which was pretty funny. I'm like, well, um, you have two choices. You're going to have steak with water or steak with Chardonnay. I think you'll find the Chardonnay tastes better than the water. <laughs> and then I take it to the lesson, which is if we want to take, you know, to ha figure out how to make this right in your head, when you go get steak frites at any great respectable steakhouse, it comes out with the maitre, the maitre, you know, maitre de beurre, like the medallion of herb butter glistening on top of the steak there's butter with steak there's butter in the glass it's all gonna be good you know like it's all gonna work out um the greatest one the single greatest one i ever got was um dude in men's room with wine list date waiting and then he sent <laughs> a picture and i'm like dear god please let it just be the wine list and that's all it was um but he sent the wine list but i didn't see it till the next day and I wrote, I looked at the next one like ah oh, sorry dude i'm so sorry i hope you didn't wake up alone <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote he wrote i made the best of it thank you but um i get all these crazy crazy emails like that um that all lead to story time by the way so like i talked i said to people like people think there's a right answer and there is no right answer here and i go and that guy by the way he should have said to the assembly and this is another lesson i get to be like talk to this these people these assemblies are dying for your attention 
They are ignored because you think that they're going to make you feel stupid. When in reality, if you say the, the, the following three things, then like, I typically drink this. We're about to eat this. I like to spend this. They're not going to think you're cheap because you're like, you're like, oh, I don't want to say the number out loud. I'm like, well, there's that. There's the trick we teach people as they read a wine list. If you're entertaining um, business guests, like a client, let's say, um, you could just open the to any page and you tip the book up and it's you and the, the wine director having a conversation and you just say, um, I'm thinking of something like this. And you point to 60 or 70 or 90 or whatever. And you say, it's something like this. We know exactly what you're saying. And we would say, fine, I'll make a few suggestions. Let me show you, blah, blah, blah. And we start taking you through the book. We know that's your ceiling. But if you're with friends, you're like, hey, 60 bucks. We're going to get three bottles. We don't care where they're from. One should be white, two red. Let's have some fun. People look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, you could say that. And believe yeah. it or not, the more you engage the, the, the wine director, unless they really are tools out of central casting, like if they're normal, good people, they will love you for raising the bar, raising the challenge, and you get some fun out of it. And, and, and I was just out to dinner with a client last week who's become a buddy. And I said to him, um, what do you want to order? And he goes, he goes, let me handle this. And like, which was really funny because he, you know, he knows wine, but no, like, but he, like, I, I never had anybody do that. He said, and he says to the, the, the wine director comes over, um, we were at Mineta Tavern uh, and he says, uh, so I'm going to tell you a few tips for one of my friends here who would tell me we're having, um, we're having carpaccio, we're having crudo, we're going to share a, 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 you know, a T-bone and, um, and fries and we're going to have cocktails first, but then one big red. Um, it's Christmas, so we're going to spend 300 and not a penny more. And I'm hoping you could suggest something that's not on the wine list. What do you got? And the guy went, holy shit. And he went downstairs and came back with a few choices that weren't on the list. And that's, I always say to people like, it never hurts to say, I would love to try something that's, uh, you know, that maybe you are almost out of or something that they just, because there's stuff that they can't put on the list anymore because there's only three left or two left, or maybe a salesman just dropped something off. Um, people love when I say this and it's true. When um, I was day, I was, when we first had kids and we would barely ever get out of the house, I would say, okay, it's date night, Monday night or Tuesday night. I would say to the waiter, I have exactly 90 minutes to get out of here. Um, it's date night. We're going to do a lot of talking. We don't need any interruptions after this. Um, one bottle, 40 bucks max. It's only Tuesday. And I don't care that we're at Danielle <laughs> or wherever we are. 40 bucks. What do you got? And the look would be like, holy cow. All right. And they'd come back and they always come back with three suggestions. And sometimes it is, hey, this is, this is, I don't even know we're going to price this at yet, but I'm going to give it to you because I like, I like your approach. And I, I, by the way, I, I preface that by saying people don't know who I am. I don't throw it out there like, hello, I'm Anthony from Food and Wine and I'm about to order wine and I'm, I'm testing you. <laughs> um, I just say like, hey man, um, let's talk really fast. And I'm a fast speaker, as you could hear when I'm not up in front of the stage. So those kind of things resonate with people and it works. Um, all to say that. So that's uh, the, what else I got to tell you. I was going to tell you food and wine, um, contributing editor, America's Press wine director, um, and uh, uh, platinum card online sommelier are the three big hats. And then I, I just have a ton, my own business that I where I'm just doing speaking gigs and wine dinners. And uh, I lead tours of Sicily every summer. Um, we're leading two next year. Uh, I I started a side gig called Super Salt, which is this passion project of mine because I'm a cook more than most people would imagine. And I'm the cook of my house. And I've been playing with this idea of, of flavored salts and compound salts for, for literally 10 years. And I came up with this, um, this profile that I love that speaks to my, you know, so the deep Southern Italian 
garlic-centric roots where a lot of seasoning salts have a lot of onion and a lot of sage. Mine is a lot of garlic and it's delicious. <laughs> and um, I, I tested the name with friends for a, a while and then we, sh we landed on um, people like, this is a great side hustle for you. And I'm like, I'm going to play with my last name, Julia, which is Giglio to a lot of Americans and say it's in my side gig. And I'm calling it super salt because it just makes everything taste better. Everything, everything from like eggs in the morning to vinaigrette to slathering it on roast to finishing anything. My kids pop popcorn all the time because we're a microwave free house. So it's like put that salt on everything. And it, it really people just love it. And it turned into a thing that last summer I finally buckled down and launched um, at the fancy food show because a friend of mine had a booth and said, why don't you put it on my table and see what people think. And I got crazy, crazy, crazy um, response. Even the, the, the buyer from Wally's was there from LA and he was like, I could sell this for 26 a jar at Wally's. And I was like, I bet you could. So I, I have him on my wait list as I'm figuring out production, but this. Well, and it's, it's such a, we were talking before we started recording and it's such a passion project that you thought, Oh, I'll throw this up on Instagram. And now you've got like a full blown production yeah. that you're trying to maintain because everyone wants this. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I wrote like, I, I put it under the Christmas tree and took a picture and I said to my daughter, what do you think? She's like, I like it. And so I wrote, perfect stocking stuff for if anybody's looking for anything. And this is only last Wednesday. And um, I, I'm, I'm over 200 orders. And I really, I planned for maybe 60, 75. And I've, I have not stopped chopping herbs and making salt until two in the morning for the last four days. I'm like, look, if you could see me, I have black circles under my eyes. Um, I'm, I'm exhausted, but it's, it's a passion project. I feel nothing but like exhilaration about this but I just you know I, proof that i'm a writer not a, a business major because this is all happening way too fast and i'm not prepared but i'll take, I'll, ta I'll take it i love it so uh so this will be our little wrap-up question here our little wrap-up segment i feel like um, i feel like i failed you though we didn't get to the moth and that was probably no, that's what i'm gonna ask you now oh, okay yeah 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 it's these things you know you need like a couple minutes and people get interested they go find it so when I first met you at the Brooks event, I thought, oh, this guy's really, this guy's engaging. He's fun. I want to learn more. So I did what everyone does. And I went and internet stalked you. And of course I found that you've written 11 books. You've, you know, you're Mr. Fancy Pants with, uh, with Amex. You're doing all these things. And then I found that you actually are, at least in your family, Mr. Fancy Pants. And I found your performance at the Moth. And, uh, and it was called Listen Here, Fancy Pants. And I remember listening to it and as as an Italian kid growing up in California, we didn't even have basements. So I wasn't even like a real Italian because <laughs> we don't have basements in San Diego. And so I was envious of, of those folks. But the talk really dove into, I mean, you were talking about family things. You were talking about fundamentally, I think, the relationship between fathers and sons. Yeah. How, did, how did the moth come up? Because this has nothing to do with wine or food yeah. or salt or any of it it's it's it's, it's an incredible life-changing story for me um and the gift that still keeps giving uh the moth did <clears throat> the moth did a top chef uh moth at uh cooper union so they had padma and and uh and tom and, and gail simmons gail simmons was my colleague at food and wine um you know she's still just recently it all changed but she was um she was on the business side with my wife. My wife's the marketing director for Food and Wine, and Gail was um, one of the you know on on the business side. But there was auditions for Top Chef before the show came on, which became a humongous success. Gail had the perfect resume. I mean, 
you know, uh, intern at Vogue, Jeffrey Steingarten's intern, speaks French because she's from Canada, uh, has cooked, you know, professional cook. She went to CIA, I think, and she just had everything. And she's beautiful and she's personable. And even all these years later, she hasn't gotten one ounce of pretension about her after all of her, her, her great success and fame. All to say, um, she does the moth and they say on the way out, uh, Meg Bowles, who's a uh, the, uh, one of the, the, the top two producers, I think. Um, Meg says, uh, don't forget, send us your best storytellers. And she says, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Right now, write it down, Anthony Giglio. And then she forwarded my info to them. And she said, you, ha- you have to talk to him. So I get a, uh, an email from Meg Bowles saying, like, we'd like to set up a phone call. So I get on the phone with her and I'm very, uh, I mean, I, I think I'm pretty much speaking the way I speak. I'm speaking to you right now. But I was trying to impress her by telling these really funny stories um, not realizing it was totally subliminal that she she called it out that all three stories she stops me she says anthony um i want to i want to i want to put the pause button here and say the following um clearly you're a great storyteller clearly you have comic timing you've you've spoken before it's obvious like you could you could you know you could seduce a cactus um with these with <laughs> but um all three stories are hearty, har, har, yuck, yuck, yuck. And the moth is in a comedy show. We find the best stories make you laugh, cry, laugh, you know, something like that. And then, you know, and then stand up and scream, make cheers. She says, um, I have a, dude, this is a woman I've never met. She goes, I have a pop psychology approach to what I think is going on here. Your dad is in every story you've told me. She says, and if I had to take a guess just by what I've looked up on you and what I'm hearing from you, you don't have a great relationship with him, or at least you didn't growing up. If I were guessing, she goes, and by the way, um, let me preface what I'm about to tell you by saying this. Um, I'm going to say this. I'm going to hang up. And in 24 hours, I'm going to call you back. And if you want to continue the conversation, after you think about what I'm going to tell you, answer the phone. If not, you're doing fine, obviously, and have a great life. And she said, I think you had a terrible relationship with your father. I think that he probably wasn't such a nice guy while he was cracking jokes about everybody. You were probably one of the jokes. And I'm just sitting there, my hair is standing, and I want to kill her. And I'm thinking, like, how dare you? You know, it, it's sort of like, what's, what's that uh, that uh, Roberta Flack uh, strumming my fate with his fingers? Like, she was telling my story without me permitted, you know, giving her permission. And I was like, how are you... How are you figuring that out? And she said, um, is that something you would be, she was, am I, tell me, am I wrong or am I right? And I was on the verge of tears. And I said, um, I could never do that to my father. And she said, we don't, I'm not asking you to crucify him. I'm asking you to think about how we could tell a compelling story. She goes, are you friends with him now? I said, yes. And she said, uh, then that's, that's the ending we need. You're still... You know, after all you went through with him, you're still together. But I want to hear about your childhood. And if we could tell that story, tell, think about it, and I'll, I'll call you tomorrow. And I hung up, and I just, like, I called my wife. I'm like, oh, my God, this is insane what just happened. And she was just like, holy shit. She goes, you wrote that screenplay years ago when The Sopranos was on. A friend of mine who knew my childhood said, Larry Smith, um, who is, uh, he and I were editors at POV Men's Magazine back in the 90s. Um, and his wife is Piper Kerman, who wrote Orange is the New Black. So Larry's a storytelling. He, he's, his his uh, whole gig is the six-word memoir project. So he had me uh, 
do a six word memoir back uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago um, about uh, growing up. Uh, we called it mezzo soprano. Like you're, you're half soprano. You're not quite a soprano, but you come from a family that's got this history. And I wrote a screenplay about it and I showed my father and he said he would kill me if it ever came to light. And I said, um, and he goes, and don't worry. He goes, and then this isn't just until I die, by the way. He goes, because you're alive, right? And when I die, all the kids of the people you're talking about here are still alive. And maybe some of them aren't as sophisticated and involved as you. Somebody might not like you making fun of the way we did, the way we lived our lives back then. And you have to, you, you know, you have to be very careful about who you throw under the rug for, for throw under the truck for, or under the train for, for comedy or for your own fame. And so I put it away. So here we come now back to it. And I tell her about the screenplay, answer the phone, obviously, the next day I tell her about it. And she says, send it to me. And she said, how do we do this in a way that um, tells just enough, but doesn't make, doesn't incriminate anybody but your parents? Like, you know, nobody, none of their friends, like, will you be able to tell the people that your father, that your grandfather was in the mafia and that your father wanted to be um, and that. Your father, as a gift from his father, was a, he made it, you know, became a bookie. My grandfather ran the numbers in all of Jersey City's West Side, and my father then was given that as a as a gift to keep him happy, even though he had to like load trucks every night. And my father was so bad at it that the that he went into debt, and my mother had to dig him out. And my mother, who was a bookkeeper, became <laughs> the chief bookie of the West Side of Jersey City. And when we were kids, we, were, we weren't allowed to answer the phone. And that became this, this joke in my family. But like, there was only one phone in the house back then in the early 70s. And, you know, and we weren't allowed to answer it because it was people placing, you know, placing bets or collecting or whatever. Um, and uh, that became the, the, the lynch of the story. The, the lynch of the story is like, here, you know, my grandfather dies and I don't understand who he was until my mother calls the local papers to read his obituary. And she, uh, she, you know, you'll hear it in the moth if anyone listens to this. Um, you hear that she has to call back and, and read a second, the same obituary with a second name, which was his, his, his <laughs> wise guy nickname, Tony Grimes. And I didn't, and, and then I, it hit me. I said to my mother, like, what is going on? And she was like, not now, but I learned later. And then the, the cast of characters who showed up at his funeral was just out of, uh, you know, a, a Scorsese film. It was just amazing. Um, and, and that just that 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 led to making sense of why my father was always so angry and frustrated and pissed off at the world and how I shocked everybody because my mother, who was such a, a, a great influence on me, a, a civilizing uh influence on me wanted me to be better than all these men in the family who were you know either illegitimate or or bad influences um including my father and how uh nobody liked what that looked like and that became this this tension that that it followed me into adulthood there where everyone my father that's where the, my, the title comes from my dad who you know smoking a cigarette staring at me at the table one day was like listen here fancy pants and then he would, you know, make some, you know, great declaration through a cloud of smoke. But he was always calling me fancy pants. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and even my cousins, we, we fought. Like, nobody liked me. Nobody liked me because I was too, I was too smart, too well-spoken. Uh, you know, I called them out on their stupidity and their ignorance. And everyone hated me. But And inaccurately, a bunch of them thought you were gay. 
Oh God. Yeah. Right. Because if you speak well, if you say please and thank you, if you care about dressing nice in the morning and being kind to people, helping your mother clean because you feel bad for her that she's exhausted and just got home from work and now she's vacuuming at 10 at night, you know, for helping her, I was, uh, what's, what's wrong? What's, what's this kid doing? He's helping with helping the women. And I, love I, it. I wanted to be a cook, Mike. That was the big thing. I want to be a cook. And my grandmother living upstairs, my mother's mother was a great cook. Uh, well, she was a terrible cook, but she was a she was an avid cook, even though she wasn't a great cook. But she loved cooking, and I wanted to cook with her, and I got in trouble for it because that's women's work, and, yeah. I, and that's what I say in the story. I was like this is before the Food Network and Emerald and and you know and and you know, chefs who were celebrated. It was it was women's work, and everyone worried about me. There were so many great. I I listened to it again. Uh, to get ready for this interview. And there's so many great mic drop moments in this speech where you have something and you deliver a line. One of my favorites was when uh, your mom tells you to talk to your dad about sex ed and you say, gosh, what am I going to do? And you ask him, uh, what's a, what's a BJ? Right. And then the great money, the mic drop moment there is that he, and he says to you, who told you to give them one? Who asked you for one? Who asked you for one? Who asked you for one? When he said that, I nearly died because I didn't know that there was any other way around this. Right. Right. Like, what? Um, yeah. That that story is, has, you know, that that story is like legendary in my family because you know, and he laughs now, but he he really thought like because you know, you and your goddamn altar boys and God knows what goes on in that back of that church and. You know, by the way, not not knowing about the sex scandals that we know today, I know none of that back then. Like no priest ever came after me. Um, but like he just thought altar boys, you're wearing dresses. He didn't go to church. Like, you know, you're, you, my, my grandmother was effeminizing me because I was wearing the, uh, the, the, the altar boy uniform and going to mass every every morning. And it was crazy, crazy stuff. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of those. There's a lot of a lot of those moments. And the story was super long and they let it be, even though they have like a 12 minute limit. And, and I probably could have gone on for the 20, but um, I was told afterwards that it was one of the best stories they had heard in years. And I went on the road with them with Molly Ringwald, which was pretty awesome that uh, um, she and I did the, the moth together. And um, we're not Christmas card friends, although we haven't seen each other since. Um, but uh, but it, it, like I said, it's the gift that keeps on giving because pe people who, again, people who have a pretense of what uh, this, this wine expert should sound like, that's the complete other side of it right there. Yeah. And it does, I mean, I think part of the reason why it was so popular and, and why they were like, keep going is because it really does deliver all the things that, that she asked you to deliver. You laugh, you cry. The, yeah. the final, for me, I think the highest, the highest kind of uh, mic drop moment was at the end when you talked about having this conversation with your dad and, and you could hear in your voice and everyone needs to go listen to this. You hear in your voice where you break when your dad finally holds your hand and, and cries and yeah. Uh, and I, as a, as a little boy and, you know, I, we all have daddy issues, I think, but as a little boy, a little Italian kid with no basement in California, I mean, like I listened to it again for probably the 10th time today before we called and I cried again. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I get emotional just thinking about it. Um, it, it was a huge catharsis, but then here's, here's the two, two if you'll permit me, I know we're getting close to an hour here. Um, so the crazy thing is I, in order to tell that story, I didn't tell a soul in my family it was happening. And not even my, I have two sisters, one who I know wouldn't care, like she wouldn't come to it. Uh, my other sister who I'm close to, I didn't tell her and I feel bad about it to this day. My sister Lisa, my sister Gina wouldn't care. Um, and I, Cause I didn't want my parents to know. And I worried like, I, I, I kind of like, I made the, the decision to let the cat out of the bag. I'm gonna tell this story, I'm putting it out there. 
I don't know what will happen from here, but I'm, I can't have them in the room when I'm telling it. I'll deal with it later, right? So because I use the phrase BJ in this story, um, NPR rejects the story. Um, they put it on. The, NPR had just pro, just um, partnered with the moth, and the the moth, the moth said, "I'm sorry, but we're going to have to shelf this because they can't. They don't like your language, and there's no way to to beep it, and we don't re-record over. It's got to be the way it was, and it went away for three years, just completely dark. And there was no Instagram yet, so it would have only been a Facebook thing. And I asked my friends, "Please don't. My mother, my mother reads it like like it's you know she fact checks my whole life." <laughs> and um, only one person slipped something in, and my sister asked about it, of course. And I said, oh, I was, I was, it was a speaking gig. And I just left it at that. Um, and uh, it went away. And then, uh, this is, that was 2012, 2016, I get an email that says, congratulations, NPR has agreed to finally release the podcast. And unless you say no, Thursday it will be downloaded by a million people. And I literally had to run to the bathroom, Mike. I mean, my stomach just went out and I called my wife. I'm like, now what do I do? And she goes, what do you do? You say yes. And then you go tell your father. And I had to go tell my parents. I, I, I had the video and I showed it to them and they didn't know what to make of it at first. And then my father was, uh, he was in tears. I, I didn't expect that at all. I expected him to throw the computer across the room. And he just said, uh, you know, we, we, you know, I, I did the best I could with what I had. And that's it. And then it went out onto the, the you know, when NPR put their podcast out and then the, the, the you know, the, the floodgates opened. My parents were getting calls. Um, it was on Facebook. And I, I wrote, I wrote about how he handled it on, on social media to say like, you know, I couldn't have expected a better reaction when I was terrified to tell him, and uh, and he he uh, he really he, he he really surprised me. He's you know he's he's gotten you know like with wisdom with age, right? But in the moment when you know when, when he was only you know in his thirties and I was a kid, you know dressing up for church on Sunday with my altar boy uniform, he wanted to kill me. He didn't know what to do with it. He just didn't know what to do with it. And his father was not happy either. So it was just layers and layers of chaos. I just I like you know the ending is about Marco, my son who I was terrified when we, we by the way, we were, we were like just on that, that cutting edge of parenthood where you couldn't, you know, gender wasn't automatic and you had to ask for it. And we decided we didn't want to know. We wanted to go old fashioned. So Sophia was born. We had no idea we were having a girl. Marco was an accident by the technician. She says, oh boy, we have a tripod in there. And we were like, what? What did you just say? And then she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I, and so we knew we were having a boy. And I'll tell you, like, I had a panic attack, like, that afternoon. Like, I don't want to have a son. I'll be a disaster. You know, like, I, I don't know what I, what I, well, I don't want to repeat what my dad did. But I don't, I just don't know what, I, I don't know what I would do with a son that, you know, given all the crap I've been through, I, I don't want to do that to him. And so my, my hope was that he'd be you know, better than all of us. And he is, he is, he's, um, he's completely and uh, utterly evolved to the next level. I don't worry about him at all. He's, he's a good kid. He's 15 now. And he's, um, he's, he's just a thoughtful, kind, smart kid who is an amazing athlete. So I like to say like, he's me perfected where, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I couldn't be happier. I have two great kids.
I love it. You said in the you said in the uh, in your speech that he had your dad's arm, your kitchen skill, your uh, kitchen knife skills, and Poppy's aim with a gun. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, because because my dad went crazy for him and just said, "I wish you know, I wish my father could meet this one," which is still a slap at me. Like, you know, like, <laughs> it's always the jab. You got to get the jab in. But because Marco Marco was like the, the everything, right? So it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. Um, people have asked me, by the way, when you're going to do one about your daughter, and uh, I thought about it for years. What would I say about Sophia? Like, how would you know? What's the story with her? But there isn't a story. There's no. There was never any any stress about her. I mean, I just was uh, so much more comfortable about the idea of having a daughter. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's very much like my wife. I adore my wife. I adore my daughter, um, and and I. I have a great, great relationship with her. I, 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 I'd like to think that, you know, we do have a really good relationship, maybe better than most father-daughters, or although it's supposed to be a classic thing, like they're supposed to hate their mothers when they're her age, she's 16. Um, but uh, she she does, she comes to me for a lot. She I think she she leans on me a lot, as much as I'd like, more than I'd like. I, I'm, I'm delighted with how much she she shares with me and leans with me. So like, I, did, I never worried about her. And that, my friends, is Anthony Giglio. You can check him out at anthonygiglio.com and also find him on Instagram at Anthony Giglio. He is a blast and just a great person, as you can hear from this episode. And we covered it all. We talked about business. We talked about continuing to up-level and come into the next thing and say yes to interesting opportunities when they're in front of you. We talked about adding entertainment and the pizzazz to your public speaking as he does so well at his events. And of course, we talked about the moth. And the power of storytelling to shape our experiences and shape our relationships. And uh, it's a great one. You can check out links to his moth performance as well as links to his website and side gigs, super salt, and all the things he is doing over on the show notes page for this episode at MikeGanino.com. Everything's over there for you. Thanks for listening. This episode has ended, but your journey doesn't have to. Head on over to MikeGanino.com. Access all the resources and links that Mike and his guests shared today. And keep on crafting your own story. That's MikeGanino.com. Your audience is waiting. Isn't it time to find your hashtag mic drop moment? 